So today, we're in John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8, desperate dependency, the core value of Poetry Baptist Church, desperate dependency. Last week, we spoke about what uh, core values are and why we even talk about them. Why would you talk about it? I said last week, I'm not up here as a Fortune 500 motivational speaker. Uh, I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to encourage you guys to do a pep rally just for the sense of some worldly concept. But core values, what's important to God has to be important to us. And we put up an illustration last week and it was of an iceberg. And there's a small point of the iceberg that was above the top of the water. And underneath is the big portion. And so the big portion underneath were the beliefs. What are our beliefs? And when people look at us, they don't see the stuff below the water. They see the stuff above the water, which are our attitudes, our words, our actions, our behaviors. So what are our behaviors as Christians? What are the things that we do? And do they truly reflect our beliefs? The belief that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he's God Almighty, that he's the eternal son, that redemption and salvation is only found in him. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing if you remain in me and my words remain in you. Ask whatever you will and it will come to pass. Do you believe that? Do we believe that as a church? I wanted to kind of give you guys a, an illustration of desperate dependency. Like, what does desperate dependency really look like? And I kind of was processing a bunch of different ideas of like, what's, that, what's the illustration? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pass out some little cards to everybody. And I'm going to have you write your name on the card. And then I'm going to collect up the cards and we're going to put them in a little hopper. And then I'm going to pull out a name, and whosoever name I pick, you get to finish the rest of the sermon. <laughs> Not really. But desperate, if, if your heart just sank and you were just like, oh my goodness, I have to get up and preach if they call me. I know my daughters are like, oh. So, yeah, desperate dependency is, what's, what does that look like? And so instead of just kind of coming up with these nebulous ideas or philosophical topics, I wanted to dive into Scripture. And so if you're really good at... Uh, Finding addresses in scripture, you can maybe keep up with me, but I'm going to rip through this stuff. So what does desperate dependency look like? Does it look like Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, when they found themselves after they'd eaten the fruit and they were naked? And they tried to take those leaves and sew them together to cover up their shame, and they hid from God. Is that what desperate dependency looks like? Or maybe does it look like when God finally cast them out of the Garden of Eden, and he drove them out to the east. And they realized we're separated from our Creator, God Almighty. Desperate dependency. Maybe it looks like Noah in Genesis chapter 6, when God told him, said, Noah, I want you to make a giant boat, an ark, 750 feet long, 75 feet wide. Is that what desperate dependency looks like in your... Uh, I'm not really sure how I'm going to pull that off. How am I going to build this giant boat in the middle of this? I, I, I don't know that maybe Moses or Moses, if Noah had never built a boat before. Desperate dependency. Or maybe desperate dependency was in Genesis chapter 7 when there was the torrential downpour. The likes of which we've probably never seen. 40 days and 40 nights. Relentless, unending. 
And I picture Noah on this boat with these animals and his family. It's like, when is this ever going to end? When will our feet ever see dry land? Maybe that's desperate dependency. Maybe it was Moses in Exodus chapter 3 when God told him, Go! Tell Pharaoh, let my people go! And Moses was, Oh gosh, I'm not really sure I'm prepared for that. Maybe you could let my brother Aaron come with me and maybe we could do this together. Desperate dependency. Or maybe it was after the golden calf incident when he was on top of the mountain and the people were like, Where's this Moses fellow? He's been gone for a while. Where is he? And he comes down and the people are locked in revelry. And they forge this golden calf. And he stands there in Genesis 33 and God tells him to go. And he says, don't send me. Without your presence, don't send me. And God tells him, my presence will go with you. And Moses says, if not for your presence, what will distinguish me and your people from all the other nations on earth? Desperate dependency. Maybe it was Rahab and Joshua chapter 2 when the spies show up in Jericho. Maybe it was then. And she's nervous because she'd heard the reports of what was happening as these Israelites were coming into the land. And the one true God was causing all of their enemies to fall before them. Maybe it was then. Or maybe it was in chapter 7. After the walls fell and they show up at her door and they'd made a promise. Are they going to keep it? Or are they going to kill me and my family? Desperate dependency on God. Maybe it was in 1 Samuel when Hannah, she came and she was barren with her husband. And they came to worship God at the temple. But her husband had taken a new wife because she was barren. And now she's just sort of an afterthought. Maybe it was when she saw Eli at the temple and the way that he was behaving not as someone who is a man in love with God, in love with his word, in love with his people. This is at the end of the period of Judges. And the summary of the period of Judges is, is that at that time Israel had no king. And everyone did as they saw fit in their own eyes. Does that sound a little bit familiar? Maybe it was, maybe it was then. And then she prayed to God that he would bless her with a child and that child could change the trajectory of a nation that had fallen so deep into idolatry that they were utterly lost. Maybe it was in 1 Samuel 16, when David was excluded. His father left him out of the lineup for who was going to be anointed as king. And Jesse lined up all of his sons, and he was so proud of them. No, no, not him, not him. That's it? Well, Jesse said, I've got one more. The red-headed stepchild that's outside taking care of the sheep. That's David. Desperate dependency. Was it then? Or maybe it was in 2 Samuel 11 when David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then he'd ordered the troops to withdraw so that her husband, Uriah, would be killed. Now he's an adulterer and he's a murderer. And then Nathan comes to him and tells him the story, the parable of the man with the sheep that was taken away. And David is appalled and he says, that man! 
And Nathan says, turns out, King David, you're that man. Maybe that's the time where desperate dependency came in. Maybe it was in Job, chapter 1, when he lost all of his herds, all of his flocks. And then he lost all of his children. Desperate dependency. Naked I came into this world. Naked I'll go. Or maybe it was when through all of the trials and all of the personal afflictions, and Job is sitting there and he's being quizzed and ridiculed by his friends, and he's standing there strong before God and his resolve starts to waver. And he's calling out to God and he says, God, he demands an audience with the Almighty. He demands it. And then God appears in the tempest, in the storm. And God says to him, Get ready to answer me like a man. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Desperate dependency. Last one. Maybe it was Hezekiah. In 2 Kings 18, he became the king of a nation. A nation of idolaters with a history his own father Ahaz sacrificed one of Hezekiah's brothers, Ahaz's own son. He sacrificed him to a false idol. He sacrificed him. Desperate dependency. Maybe that's what it looks like. Or maybe, maybe it was when Assyria's king, Sennacherib, arrives at his door with 185,000 men armed, trained warriors and soldiers show up at their door about to knock it down. No one has ever stopped them. No one. Everyone else that he's faced, and he writes a letter to Hezekiah, don't put trust in your God. Don't. All the other kings, all of the other nations before you, they've been toppled. They've been toppled. Don't place your trust in a false God. And Hezekiah lays that letter out before the Lord, desperately dependent. God, please. And in the morning, Hezekiah wakes up, and he's done nothing. There's not been a single swing of a sword. Not a single arrow has been fired. And the angel of the Lord had come in the night, the destroyer, and wiped out the entire army. 185,000. The only one left was the king, who had to turn tail and run and go home. What does desperate dependency look like? When we come to John's Gospel, the thing that's just struck me this week, the thing that struck me is that, see, when Jesus is speaking to these disciples, all throughout John's Gospel, if you've studied it, if you've read it, if you've just experienced it before, Jesus has several I am statements, seven of them in fact. In chapter 6, Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. In chapters 8 and 9, he said, I'm the light of the world. In chapter 10, he talks, he refers to himself as being the sheep gate. He's the door. Chapter 10, he goes on to say that he's the good shepherd. I am. I am. I am. In chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus. I am the resurrection and the life. Chapter 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is the exclusive way. He's it. And now, chapter 13, 
I've preached on it before. You've heard it before. In John's Gospel, we don't have the Lord's Supper. We have the picture of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Washing their feet. And the transition goes from this idea of personal salvation. And now we get to chapter 15. And Jesus says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Let's look at it. I am the vine, my father is the vineyard keeper, the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. What I want you to tune in here in this section, this section of John 15, is that the yous that Jesus is referring to, it's not you, Johnny, it's not you, Tom, it's not you, Roland, it's not you, Vincent, he's talking to you. If Jesus was in Texas, what he would have said is y'all. Y'all, it's the plural. He's talking to these 12 men, one of whom he knows is going to betray him in just a moment. He knows it. And he's saying, you, y'all, every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes, talking about the Father. And he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine. So neither can y'all unless y'all remain in me. I'm the vine, y'all are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit. See the point there is that Jesus isn't simply talking about our personal salvation. Jesus is establishing the church. This is the vehicle of redemption. As Rollins just a moment ago stood up here from Gideon's International, he talked about that, that Bible, that's the vehicle that goes through the church, the bride of Christ. And we, the church, we are the fuel that drives it, that takes it there. Are we committed to that? Is there a sense of desperate dependency within us as Poetry Baptist Church? Is there a sense of urgency within the church in America? Is there a sense of urgency and desperate dependency that without it, people are lost? Without it, I would have never been saved. You would have never been saved. You would have never heard, ever. You would have never known. Jesus is saying this because there needs to be, as we learned in the book of Acts, as was preached on just a few short days ago, it said that they devoted themselves to what? To the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They didn't devote themselves to personal salvation. They devoted themselves collectively to being the bride of Christ. Is that what we're committed to? So oftentimes in churches, the things that we argue about, the things that cause division and dissension, that Paul rebukes in Galatians 5, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Envy, dissension, jealousy. He goes into things that we as a church often just allow ourselves to get sucked into. And he says that it's not important. Jesus is saying what we need to be committed to as a church, desperate dependency upon him. Jesus sent them out earlier to cast out demons. 
and to preach the good news. And they came back in Matthew's Gospel, it says, they came back. He was up on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? And when he came down, the ones who didn't go up with him were sitting there and they couldn't cast out a demon from this man's child. And Jesus goes to them and he sends out the demon. And he tells them, this kind can only come out by prayer. There isn't another kind. There's not another kind of demon that doesn't come out by prayer. There's not another kind. They had gotten so drunk, he had sent them out earlier and they came back and they were so proud of themselves. Look at what we've done. We've done all these, look at what I've done. Look at what Kevin Kelly has done. I'm pastoring a church, I write a blog, I've taught at a Christian school, I've graduated from, look at what I've done. It doesn't matter. What have we done? What have we done as the church? That's what Jesus is telling them. That's the foundation. That's the thing that drives us and moves us forward. Having conversations with people during this week and some of the teachers that are going to teach Sunday school. And some of the, some of the questions that came up and asking is like, well, how is it, do, is, this, is Jesus teaching about personal salvation? And that if, how can we be attached to him, but yet he's saying that we stop producing fruit? Well, if we're attached to him, how do we not produce fruit? And if we're not producing fruit, then were we really attached to him? Does that mean we lost our salvation? Is that about apostasy? It's not about personal salvation. Not here. That's not what he's teaching on. What he's teaching on is that these men are going to be the church. They're the ones to whom in early Acts, the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost comes and reigns in their hearts. And they inaugurate the church and they move it forward. They're the apostles who the early disciples devoted themselves to their teaching. They were the ones who spent time with Jesus. Desperate dependency, admonition moving forward. So in 15.5, look there. I am the vine, you, y'all, are the branches. The one who remains in me, and I in him, produces much fruit because you, y'all, can do nothing without me. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit. Desperate dependency is for us as a church. Is it for individuals? Absolutely. But don't lose the point of the message. Jesus is establishing his church. He's not establishing a bunch of lone rangers. Go out and do my ministry, Cheryl. Go out and do my ministry, Joe. No, he's established his bride. When we look in Revelation, when Jesus is returning and he's establishing the new Jerusalem, it's his bride that's been washed in white. Washed in white by the sacrifice of Christ and by the acts of the saints. That's what it tells us. If anyone does not remain in me, if there's false teachings... How often do we see that in the church today? The emerging church movement. Let's get rid of doctrine. Let's move that out of the way because that's an obstacle between us, the gospel of Christ, and lost people. They get hung up on, oh, what does it mean to be saved? What is soteriology? What's ecclesiology? What's eschatology? Let's just move all that doctrine out of the way. No! You can't remove doctrine. That's the apostolic teaching that the early disciples devoted themselves to and that's why God blessed what they did and they produced much fruit if they didn't guess what none of us would be here we wouldn't be saved 
We wouldn't know. We wouldn't have been invited into the privilege of participating, bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. He says that it dries up. They're gathered up, cast into the fire, and burned. And in 15.7, what does it say? If you remain in me and my words remain in you, also ask whatever you want, whatever you will, and it will be done for you. It will come to pass. He's not making a proclamation regarding your personal individual prayers. He's saying that when we as a church, when we are devoted to one another as the body of Christ, and when we lift that up, one another, we lift that up to the Father in Jesus' name, when we are passionately, personally invested and involved in the mission of God. Not sitting at home, God, would you, would you please make sure that I don't lose my job? God doesn't make any promises about whether or not we're going to keep a job or lose a job. As a matter of fact, one of the instruments that God used to bring me to salvation was the absolute failure of a business. God doesn't just simply, he's, it's not pillow prosperity. He's not a God of comfort. We've got all eternity to be in the presence of God. This time right now isn't for that. This is the time for the work of the saints to get down and dirty, nitty and gritty, and to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Don't let anything get in the way. Don't let anything stop you from participating in fellowship. Well, it's, I don't know, it might rain today. I see a cloud out there on the horizon. I think I'll sleep in. You know what? I, I, I couldn't really sleep so well last night. It's going to be a long day. It's going to be rough. I'm not going to go. You are missing out on a blessing, and we are missing out on your blessing in being here because we're members of the body of Christ. Members. Jesus chose us. He appointed us to go and produce. So what's the response? What's the application here? Are we a church that is desperately dependent on Jesus? Are we? See, we can say that desperate dependency is a core value. As my wife pointed out the other day, she said, now, are these your core values that you just simply wrote into uh, the church covenant agreement, or are these the church's core values? I love my wife because she tells it to me straight. And I said, well, yeah, I did. I sat down and I wrote them out. And I said, we presented them to the church. I put it, and she's like, yeah, I know. You presented them to everybody. But is that really who we are? That's why I'm preaching it. Because if it's not who we are, let's go into that covenant agreement and let's just tear that part out. I got it in a Word document and I can go and edit it. If we're not really desperately dependent on Christ, let's not say that we are. Let's not say we're a church about extreme hospitality if we're not. Let's not say we're about unity. Let's not say we're a church that's expectant that when we pray as a church... We pray to the Father and ask that His will be done. In the name of Jesus, do we really believe? Do we really believe it's going to happen? Or do we just kind of have the caveat on the end, but not my will, your will be done. And we throw that in there. Well, that's what Jesus said. Jesus said it because His will lined up with the Father. It lined up with it. He knew the Father's will. He got up every day and He prayed. Jesus for a split moment in his humanity, was like, could this, 
Could this cup pass for me? The cup of wrath, of all sin, all shame, not just the physical torment of the cross, not the excruciating pain of physically suffering, of having nails driven into his wrist, but the sin and shame of all humanity for all time bearing that at the cross. And for a moment, Father, did, did we really come up with every, did we explore every option, every avenue? And he knew, he knew the Father wouldn't have sent him if there was another way. In his humanity, for a split second, could, could the cup pass? But I know that your will, not my will be done. Is that how we are as a church? Are we simply praying for newer facilities? Are we praying for more people so that we can feel good about ourselves? Are we praying for the lost? Because that is the will and the heart and the passion and the mission of God from the very beginning. The Lamb of God that was slain from when? Last Tuesday? Pentecost? No! From the foundation of the cosmos. Response and application. Are we as a church producing fruit? Not just game nights. Don't get mad at me. Don't get mad at me. I love game night. We just had it. And we're going to have it again next month. And I want you to come. We love game night. I had a blast playing with Andrew and Heather and my daughters. We had a blast at game night. But that's, not, that's for us. What are we doing as a church for them? My friend Rushing May stood up here a few weeks ago, and he said, when you think about the word lost, when we refer to people as being lost, if your child was lost, and we think about it the same way, if one of my daughters, if my little girl Hannah, if Connor was lost, I wouldn't just sit there and go, God, you know, I just pray that you would do something for him, and um, yeah, okay, well, let's all eat. I would, as Rushing said, I'd call all my friends, I'd call the police, and I'd say, God, please help us find Connor. And we'd form a line, and we'd go out, and we'd beat the trees, and we wouldn't give up. We'd send out an Amber Alert. Is that how we respond? See, because there's people right next door over here. Right next door over here. There's people to the ends of the earth who are lost, who don't know. Is that how we feel? Are we desperately dependent? Are you as a member of this church in on that? Are you praying for, asking for, desperate for the Father's will to be accomplished? Is that who we are? See, like I said, if that's not us, we can go into that covenant agreement and I can just hit delete, 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 delete. We can delete that section out. Or are we truly desperately dependent as a church, as individuals? that God's will be accomplished in us and through us to bring glory and honor to God. We've only got a small window, guys. We've only got a small window. We've got a lot of folks in our church that are older. We've got some younger families. We've got some young kids. Are you coming into the twilight of your life, and as you look back, if you've been saved as a Christian for 20, 30, 40, 60, 80 years, I don't know how long, and you look back, how much fruit have you produced? How much fruit have you produced? How much fruit has our church produced? Much? A little? Or are we starting to dry up? Are we starting to wither a little bit? Because we're focused on the wrong things. Are we focused on Christ? Are we focused on making much of his name and bringing his glory 
and his fame and his gospel to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much that you sent your son. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you, as the eternal son, came and that you promised that you would send something better, that you would send your spirit. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you dwell and you reign in our hearts, that you make this church the temple of God because you not only reign in our hearts, but you reign in this place as a God of relationship, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Cause us to be relational. Cause us to be desperately dependent for those who don't know you. Help us to be the vehicle of your grace and love in this lost and broken world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.